Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Amen. Good morning. I think, um, I love that. Dylan said that last week and again this week about how Jesus said, you know, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And, and, and I, I agree. I, I don't think it was Jesus saying, you want to prove it? Keep my commands. And I don't think it was a challenge. I believe it was just a statement. If you love me, you'll do what I ask you to do. Why? If, if I have to tell my wife, like, oh, yeah, you love me? Well, then prove it. Keep the covenant you made. Like, does that sound like love? Or is it, if you love me, you'll do the things you promised? Why? Because you love me. Not because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't. And not because you're trying to prove something to me. Out of simple love for me. And, and I think that's what Jesus invites us into, is this life of, of living with him and knowing him and, and loving him to the point where we become transformed so that our automatic response is to live like he lived. That's what we're called to. Those who claim the name of Christ must, in this world, walk as he walked. So, it, that we, you know, sometimes we take, you know, taking the name of the Lord in vain to mean saying, you know, oh my, you know, G-O-D, or attaching a swear word to the backside of his name, like he has a second, you know, like his last name is a swear word. But, and I think that is, you know, part, maybe part of taking his name in vain. But I think even more than that would be to take the name of Christ, which is what a Christian is. You take his name. You actually take on the name. He says he became the, the, the he called himself the son of man. This, you know, the son of God. C.S. Lewis said it perfectly. I couldn't say it better. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. He took our name so that we could take his and to take his name on and then not actually live the way that he lived would be to take his name in vain. Because you've taken the name, so you have a form of godliness, but you're not actually transformed by him, so you're denying the power thereof, because it's the power of Christ is supposed to be to transform us into the image of him. That's why he came. It's so that, so that our response is to be like him, and, and because it's who we've become, not because we have a set of rules that we're going, okay, what does Jesus command me here? What does Jesus command me? I mean, if that's where you are, like, look, that's better than living out of your own flesh and natural response and just doing what feels right in the moment and living selfishly. Like, you know, if, if that's where you're at, is to say, wait a minute, what would Jesus do? But it's even better to get alone with him and be changed by him so that your response looks like him because you are like him. So when we read it, it says we, when we, a man who stares into the word is like a man who looks into the mirror. When we look into the word of God and we see Jesus, we see who we're to become. We see who the one who we're created in the image of, and we see God's desire and plan for our lives and the way that we live. Um, I, I, don't, I don't tell a lot of stories from up here because sometimes I feel like if we're not careful, if we tell a bunch of testimonies of things that we do, um, it creates this this thing. I, I don't know. It feels weird to me sometimes, maybe. Um, but sometimes I, I feel like maybe I should. So I was at a grocery store the other day. And, and again, anything that I'm saying that I've done or, or revelation I've received or any of this stuff, is it's not of my own doing because prior to meeting Jesus, this was not who I was. I was, I mean, so, so I can't take credit for this because it was the love of God that came and crashed into my heart and changed who I am. And it's only by his grace. And so it's, it's by the faith that I live with in him. And that, that faith is a gift from him. So, so none of this could be about me anyways. Um, but I was, I went to the grocery store and I'm usually that guy that when I look 
when I, like, as I'm walking up to the lines, I'm scanning to see which line is the shortest, right? Who's got the smallest cart of stuff? And, and then sometimes I even go a step further than that in my haste, and I start thinking which cashier looks like they might be speedier. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you see someone going, but then you see that young dude that's just on it, you know, and, he's, and you're like, I'm going to that line. Even though that cart's a little bigger, you know, you start doing the math in your head. They've got two-thirds more groceries, but he's moving seven times faster. I'm going there, right? That's me, and I'm trying to figure out which one's going to get me through the fastest. And, and so there was this, this one line was open, and then there's a line over here that someone's at, and I can't really see but besides to see, like, the back of their head, and they've got a cart full of groceries. But I felt like the Lord said to go to that line. Not like every time I go to the grocery store, I'm like, okay, God, which line? right? You don't have to like hyper-spiritualize everything, but when the Lord tells you to go to a line, you should probably be obedient because if he's speaking, there's something significant there. And so, so I was like, okay. And so against my nature and against everything that I know, I, I passed by the open line and went behind the, the, this, this woman with a cart full of groceries. And I'm just standing there and I, I didn't have like this, you know, wasn't like God gave me some download of like what was going to happen. I just felt like I'm supposed to be in that line. So I'm go to that line. And I pulled my phone out, and I was returning a text, and I hear her say, turn and say, I'm so sorry to be holding you up. And I said, oh, you're not, it's fine, I don't, I'm not in a big hurry. And uh, she turns back around, and I went back to returning the text, and then I hear her say, well, maybe take this and this off, and take this and this off, and, and take that off. I'm so sorry, I've, I've just never had to budget for groceries before. And I look up, and I said, no, 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 just, just put everything through, and I'll, I'll pay for it. And... Um, I said, or I said, what are you doing? And, and she said, I, I'm sorry, I just, I've never had to budget. And I, I didn't realize I spent so much. I said, no, 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 put all that stuff through and I'll pay for it. And she said, oh, no, I can't let you do that. And I said, you're not letting me. I'm going to do it, so you might as well just <laughs> accept that. And I handed my card to the cashier and I said, put all this stuff through and then I'm going to pay for it. And um, she, kept, she kept arguing with me and, and finally said, listen, I'm in this line because God told me to come here. And now I know why, because he wants you to know you're not abandoned, you're not forsaken, and he hasn't forgot about you, right? No, listen, listen. She starts weeping. I'm thinking, okay. The cashier's crying. I'm thinking, I mean, it's just, you know, some groceries. Um, And so I paid, but I also got some cash back, and I stuffed it in her her, um, I tried to give it to her, and she wouldn't take it. I gave it to her son. He was about 12. He was standing there. I said, you give that to your mom when you get out to the car. It's okay. And she's just like, I don't know what to say. I said, don't say anything. Just, just be blessed. He loves you. He cares about you. So she leaves and goes out, and the cashier's standing there crying. And she says, before you walked up, she just told me that her husband had abandoned her three weeks ago and left her with their three children and ran off with somebody else. Now, the kindness of God to just to have me say, you're not abandoned, you're not forgotten, as she's standing here feeling abandoned and forgotten. So I'm like, oh, that's so amazing, you know, because it's like, it's it's just so awesome that, and and here's, here's, so I leave and I'm walking out and of course she's parked right next to me. (laughs) And I said that, I said, obviously you're parked right next to me, now I get to pray for you. And so I said, would that be okay? Could I pray for you? And I I said, the cashier kind of told me, I didn't know what her son knew. So I said, the cashier kind of told me about, you know, maybe the situation that you're in a little bit. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's okay. He he knows, you know, my husband 
ran off and he's receiving Christian counsel telling him that he's okay to leave me because of X, Y, and Z. And it just broke my heart. I said, oh, if I hear that one more time. And, and she said, I just, I, I don't know what to do, and I feel just alone. And I said, listen, he sent me to this grocery store on this day in that line so that you would know he loves you. He promises to be a husband to the widow and a father to the orphan. I said, you guys aren't abandoned. I said, there's a time right now for you to press into him and experience him in a way you never have before. I said, and one thing you can't do is don't let your heart get bitter towards your husband. Don't let what was done against you reproduce inside of you. Don't you dare let that change you. And you just keep loving him and, and, and praying for him and, because he's in trouble. And, um, and so I, I prayed with her and, and then got in the car and left. And now I was crying as I was driving away, just thanking God. But the amazing thing about that is, is I didn't wake up that morning with a checklist of pure, pure religion in front of God is this, to take care of the orphan and widows and their distress. And I wasn't like walking around striving, trying to find, I got to find something to do. I gotta find. No, it's we live this life with him. And, 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 then, and then here's the beautiful part about this, is he looks and he sees people whose hearts are fully devoted to, them, to him. And he, I, I was, we were talking about this yesterday, like, what an honor that God said, there's one of my daughters that needs to know she's not abandoned and forsaken. And if I tell Roy to go to that line and he hears what she says, he'll respond with my heart. To be entrusted with that. And that's, and I, listen, like, I, who can boast in that when the man that I was wouldn't have even heard her? Wouldn't have even heard what she was saying. Never mind, actually cared enough to step into a place of sowing her the Father's heart. And here's the deal. From that day forward, the enemy can never again come to her with the lie that she's abandoned, forsaken, or forgotten about because she has a story of God stepping into, into her reality and telling her, you're not forsaken, you're not abandoned, you're not left alone. I love you, I'm for you. And it just silences the voice of the enemy. Why? Because there's people on this earth who actually have been transformed by the grace of God and believe that to live is Christ. And so if I'm alive and I'm in the grocery store, look, I mean, how many times have I gone to the grocery store and something like that doesn't happen? It's not like every time you go to the grocery store you have these, but sometimes it should, all right? Because there's a world out there that, that needs to know what he's like, and that's the reason that you became transformed and you became born again was so that he could transform you to the image of his son so that people could look at you and you could say to them the same way Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen what the Father's like. That's not like a heady, lofty thing to say. It's the goal of Christianity is to become like Jesus. And Jesus said, look, I came to show you what the Father's like. There's a lost, dying world out there that doesn't know what he's like, that have been misrepresented. He's been misrepresented so many different ways. So many people have this idea of who God is that is so far from who he is. And their lives are controlled by fear and bondage, and they never feel like they measure up, and they never feel like they're worthy, and they don't even count themselves as worthy to come before him. The idea of worshiping him in the beauty of holiness, like Scripture says, come before him in the beauty of holiness, that's so lost to so many people because they feel everything but beautiful and everything but holy. And so God is sitting on the throne with his arms crossed, looking at them with an eye of judgment. And who would want to come before that? Why would you open yourself up and, and commune intimately with him if that's the way that your perception of him is? 
That's why we have to understand the message of righteousness and who we are in Christ. Now, open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 10, because that's what I want to talk about today. But, but the, what, what brought me to, to telling that was this, was I wasn't like, Jesus, I need to prove that I love you today. No, it was, Jesus, I love you. And, and then he says, I know you do. And because you do, you'll, you'll do what I ask you to do. So if I tell you to go to that line, you'll go to that line. If I prompt your heart to, to, to help out someone who needs help, you'll help out someone that needs help. And, and at the end of it, I, would, I didn't walk out of the store and go, see, I told you I loved you. Like, how weird would that be? Like, how weird would it be if you came home and your wife was like, I just want to let you know I didn't cheat on you today. <laughs> what? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I made a promise to you, and I, I told you that I love you, and I'm going to keep that promise. I just want to let you know that I proved that I loved you today, because that'd be so weird. There's this natural expectation of like, of course you didn't. Why, why would you do something apart from love if you love me? And I think with, with Jesus, it's like that. Like, yeah, of course you, you do what I ask you to do because you love me. And because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. You've been transformed. You've been changed. So Paul's saying, he's talking to the church in Corinth. He says, don't you know that, and he lists all these different things, that these, these habits and sin patterns we realize. He says, don't you know that, 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 that none of these will inherit the kingdom of God? He says, and such were some of you, but you were sanctified. You were justified. You were saved. He says, listen, that's, that, that kind of stuff, that's who you were. And now you've been changed. That stuff should be so foreign from you. Like, that's who you were before you met Jesus and before he transformed your life and before you became a new creation and accepted the righteousness of God that was paid for by the blood of Jesus when he died on a cross for your sins. Like, Paul's like, he's, to him, I think it's almost so foreign for him to even think that people would live that way because of the way he was transformed by Jesus. And he looks and he's like, why? He says, there's, there's jealousy and envy and strife. Why are you acting like mere humans? What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you can't listen to the leading of the Spirit of God and live that way. A mere human being, a brute beast, is led about by their own senses. He says, and that's who you were, but then the Spirit of God came and lived inside of you. Truth came. Why would you live the way you lived prior to that? When you were just a mere human being walking around, not possessed by the Spirit of God, not cleansed in, of all unrighteousness, not filled with His Spirit and given a new reason for living, why would you live that way now? I, and I don't think he's saying it like, I don't think he was being sarcastic or condescending or trying to beat them down like, what's wrong with you? I think he's genuinely like, it, to him, it doesn't make sense. Like, wait a minute, I know the gospel that was preached to you. He, he reminds them of that. He says, you remember what was preached to you? And I think he's thinking, like, wait a minute, I remember the gospel was preached to you, so I know, I, I preached it. I know you heard the truth. And, and I saw the, the fruit of repentance in your life, and I saw that, that you, you got baptized into new life in Christ, and the Spirit of God came and lived inside of you, and you were made holy. He reminds them of that later. He says, he says, you know, anyone that destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for his temple is holy, and that is what you are. Like, he says, you guys, you guys became these, these holy vessels and dwelling places for the presence and the Spirit of God to come and live inside of. Says, so why would you live the way that you did before that? You're living like mere humans. 
So Hebrews chapter 10 kind of explains this stuff, and, and it also gives purpose to it. And we're going to read from, from, uh, from the beginning of the chapter um, to like the 22nd verse. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have, any, have had any consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he, capital he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. This is Jesus talking to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, what will? The will of God that he came to do. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, but which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their minds. I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that, that you've written this amazing book that's alive and that we can see and hear your heart as we read the words on the page. I thank you that it's alive, that, that it brings life to us, that, that the seed of your word coming inside of us causes something to grow. And God, I ask that as we, as we speak and, and think and teach from your word today, God, that, that it would be from your heart. God, that we would, we would hear with ears to hear, that our minds, God, that we have the mind of Christ, that we could comprehend these things, that, that spiritual things are understood by spiritual people. And God, that our hearts would be that good soil, that the seed of your word would go in and it would bear fruit, God, that a world that doesn't know you, that people who don't know what you're like would taste the fruit of our lives that you're producing in us and know that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We say this a lot here and we talk about this, that, that this gospel that, that, that 
the Apostle Paul came and preached is all about the old passing away and the new coming. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Old gone, new come. Put off old self, put on Christ. It's a gospel of transformation. It's a gospel of reconciliation. It's a gospel of what was has passed and what now is has come. And it's, so it's not the idea of like, well, this is a temporary band-aid for the things you've done wrong. It's like, no, that was a, for the, what the law provided was a temporary appeasement for the sin. But now Christ has come and everything has changed. It, it's why, well, I would get ahead of myself. I get so far out there because it's like you see these verses and then you start thinking of other verses and that's what happens. When, when you, that's why you need to read and know the word of God because you're thinking about a verse and it reminds you of a verse and you jump to that verse and you're like, this is what you were talking about. You know, it's like, it, like when John comes in, I'm going to get ahead of myself, see? He, so this, he starts out, he says, For the law, since it only has a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which are offered continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. He says, listen, the law was a shadow of good things to come. It wasn't the thing to come. It was a shadow of things to come. The good things to come were the gospel that Jesus Christ came and preached, the gospel of the kingdom, the fact that he was going to give his life on a cross in place for our sins, that God would make him who knew no sin to become sin so that we who were full of sin could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the good things to come. And so the law was a shadow of that, but it didn't have the image. It didn't have the exact image of what was coming. And so it says this. It says, and this is a part that I love. It says, he says, um, it could never by the same sacrifices they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not cease to be offered? In other words, he says, it actually didn't remove anything from you. Because if it removed it from you, you wouldn't continue to sacrifice year after year for it. So the best it could do was cover, but it couldn't take away. And he says, even in those sacrifices, there was actually a reminder of sin. That when you would come into that place and you would offer sacrifice, it was a reminder. You were, you were conscious of the sin that you committed. You were conscious of your, of your wrongdoings. And so every year when you would come and make a sacrifice, it was just another fresh reminder of who you were and where you had fallen short and how you had missed it. And you had to continually do that over and over and over again. He says, otherwise, their consciousness of sin would have been cleansed and they would have stopped giving sacrifice. In other words, like if it could actually remove something and change you, you wouldn't have to continually come and make sacrifice over and over again. It would have been done when you made that sacrifice, but the law couldn't do that. And so, uh, so he says, um, there was a reminder of sin year by year. Why? Verse 4, for it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It couldn't actually take away sin. So even though the sin was that you committed was, was, was paid for, the penalty was paid for by the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, it didn't actually remove that from you. And so there was this consciousness of sin that constantly dwelt in the mind of people. And the, and, and the thing that they were doing to actually atone for the sin was also a reminder of the sin continually over and over and over again. It's why for the Christian who is born again in Christ to continually confess the same sin over and over again and ask to be forgiven over and over again is a useless and fruitless endeavor because when God forgave you he said I remove their sin as far from them as the east is from the west and he said I will remember their sin no more 
So he doesn't even know what you're talking about after it's been forgiven. Why? Because he's not a man that he should lie. He esteems his word even above his own name. So if he said, I won't remember your sin, when you come to him and you confess that sin that's already been covered, that's already been confessed, that's already been forgiven, he doesn't even know what you're talking about because it's removed from him as far as the east is from the west. So you don't feel any better. Why? Because nothing has changed and the, everything that would change already changed when the sacrifice was made for the sin. Now it's up to you to actually live by faith that what he said he did, he actually did. It's not God. He said once Jesus made this sacrifice, he sat at the hand, right hand of God the Father. He's done once for all time. He's not going to come and die again. And so we have to live by faith in the finished work of Jesus rather than in faith of what we have done. I'm going to get so far ahead of myself, but I can't. I know, I know, but I got to stay in somewhat of an order, right? And, and so this is why when John the Baptist made the statement he made, it was so radical because he sees Jesus coming. Now listen, just take scripture and let it all fit together, right? So the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, but John sees Jesus coming. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, according to Hebrews, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes to take away the sin of the world. Not to cover the sin of the world for a time, and then you have to go back and get sprinkled again, and get sprinkled again, and get sprinkled again, and your faith is only as good as your ability to have lived well in the time period since the last time you were sprinkled. No, he says, listen, what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do, which God wasn't happy with, he said, in the sacrifice of bulls and goats, you took no pleasure. In other words, God wasn't happy that his people had to continually come and were constantly conscious of their sin and reminded of their sin. He says, what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do, John declares, Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to do, to take away the sin of the world. That's why the law was a shadow of the good things to come. So now you see why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, that word, we've said it over and over again, is metanoia, metanoia. It means to change the way that you think. And some people, you know, they, they have a hard time with that. They say, well, well, it's more than just changing the way you think. You have to actually change the way that you live. How do you change the way that you live? You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when your mind becomes renewed, the rest of you becomes transformed. You don't try to change what you think by the way that you live. That never works. That's legalism. That says, I'm going to do enough to finally make a difference here. Grace says, no, you have to actually believe here. And then out of your belief here will flow the way that you live. So as the way that you think is changed, the way that you live will line up with the new truth that you actually live, that you actually believe, that you actually know. That's why Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you know the truth, the truth actually sets you free. The truth changes you. And who is truth? Jesus. The way, the truth, the life. The more I know Jesus, the more truth I know, the more my life begins to be transformed because what I think has changed, so the way that I live changes as a result. That's not, that's not a cheap gospel. That's not, oh, well, well, you're, so you're just, you know, there's nothing. Listen, I mean, the, Yes, you will. When, when you realize, when the way that you think changes and then you find yourself doing something that violates the will of God for your life, there will be godly sorrow. 
there will be tears. There will be this coming before him, God, you know, and, and, and saying, I'm so sorry, Father, I've missed it. Why? Because you're genuinely bothered because you lived apart from the truth that you know. But that's not the fullness of repentance because if I'm just continually sorry, but I don't think differently so that I live differently, I find myself back under the law, which says I can't be different. So the best I can do is hope that there's continually a sacrifice being made over and over and over again. It, it's, it's in your Bible. Now it's just got to find its way into our hearts and into our minds so that what we read isn't convicting, it's encouraging. Let it convict us, but if all it ever does is convict you, eventually you'll, that will lead to condemnation if you don't let it transform you and actually become the thing that conviction is pointing out that you can. That's why it's, make sure that you actually want to change before you start opening up the word of God and seeing what he calls you into, because it will convict you. But conviction that isn't actually acted upon eventually becomes condemnation because you have all this knowledge of who, of what is possible, but you're not actually giving yourself to the one who makes it possible. And now you see the truth of what you could be, but you see the reality of where you are and condemnation comes because the two don't line up because you're so full of knowledge in your head, but there's very little actual repentance or actually changing the way that you think and allowing the way that he thinks to become the way that you think. And so if you don't do that, eventually that conviction will turn to condemnation. It, it's, it's the, it's, it's, conviction is there to show you so that you think differently, so that your life is transformed and you actually live differently. Otherwise, you just become another person full of knowledge that's puffed up, but no love that actually transforms. All right. I know it's right. It's, it's the word. It has to be. I don't ever want to stand up here with a theory. Not when I can have truth. Why would, it, why would I want a theory? Why would I want something that's based on, why would I want to look at my life and, and determine with the, the, the accuracy of his word based on my experience or another man's experience? Why wouldn't I let my experience be transformed by the truth that I find in the word? Well, see, what are you saying? That, that we can become perfect? No, I'm saying the word says that he perfected once for all time those who are sanctified. Let, let that mean what it means to you. And, and why here's an indictment, literally, on, on all of us, but especially on those of us that preach. If we take the truth of God's word and we hear it and then we come up with an experience in our life that invalidates that, what we're saying is what I have lived is more true than what his word says is possible. It's a sure sign that I'm probably not living according to what I read in the word because I'm having to defend my life rather than let his word defend me. So you know why I can stand up here and smile when I say this? Because I've been letting this convict me over and over, but it's led to transformation, and I can actually look at my life, and I'm not saying I walk perfectly. Listen, do things come out of my mouth that shouldn't come out of my mouth? Do attitudes rise in my heart that should never be in the heart of someone whose heart is fully devoted to him? Yeah. Do I sometimes have a tone in my voice that I should never have when I'm talking to anybody, never mind the people that I'm closest to? I mean, it's not okay for anyone, but especially like, you know, your children, your wife. Yeah, that stuff. So, but here's the point. I look at my life and I can see I've been transformed by the grace of God. 
and who I was is not who I am. And tomorrow I'm going to look more like him than I did today because I'm going to follow his spirit today, which will lead me to a place of fruitfulness that looks more like Jesus tomorrow. And then tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do it over again. And I'm going to follow him and I'm going to be led by his spirit straight to the heart of the Father. And I'm not going to live condemned because I'm going to understand that who I, what, the things that I've done are not, don't define who I am. You know that Jesus doesn't call her the adulterous woman? Your Bible does. A man put that in there to tell you what the story was about. You know, the story is not even about the fact that she was adulterous. It was about that he was loving. It should say the kindness of Jesus, not the adulterous woman. Why? Because he doesn't look at her as an adulterous woman. He looks at her as a daughter that doesn't know her value and doesn't know why she was here on the earth and is looking for love in all the wrong places. So he says, you're looking for me. So maybe it's not really so much about the woman caught in adultery as it is the woman who landed in the arms of a loving God and was told who she is. We identify people by their mistakes. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. You know that God doesn't call him Doubting Thomas? Come on, God doesn't call him Doubting Thomas. He calls him Thomas. Or whatever name he's given him. We call him Doubting Thomas because it makes us feel better about the times that we doubt because someone who walked with Jesus doubted. So then we feel okay by justifying with saying, well, even Thomas, I mean, he walked with Jesus and he doubted. That's not, that's not the definition of his life. We defined him by the, why, the one time that we found where he lacked faith and said, I, I didn't, didn't believe what was said to him. How about the time when Jesus tells him right before that, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. And Thomas says before anybody else, Thomas pipes up and says, then we'll go and die with you. Why don't we call him Courageous Thomas? Why don't we call him Thomas who was ready to give his life for Jesus? Why don't we call him by the good that we read that he did rather than the mistake that we read or the time that he was caught in doubt? Because if we find something wrong with him, it keeps me from having to find what's wrong in me. And if I, if I, if, if I actually let God deal with what was wrong and I believe that I am who he says that I am, then I can look at people and believe who, that they are who he says they are rather than finding the one thing that I could find issue with. That's the thing that divides us so much is we're always looking for what's wrong rather than seeing what's right. Why? Because our own hearts are looking for what's wrong and we feel condemned. So we, we feel better about ourselves often by finding what we can condemn in other people. That's not the heart of God. I promise you when he walks around in heaven, people don't go, there's doubting Thomas. <laughs> Maybe we should stop it's supposed to be on earth as it is in heaven. See, I'm, this is what I'm saying. It's so fun when we just, like, just, just get in the word. And, and even if in the moment you're not getting this amazing, life-shattering revelation, the word of God is coming inside of you, and then the spirit of God can bring it to your remembrance. And all of a sudden you start reading, and you go, wait a minute, if this is saying this here, and that's saying that there, then this must mean this. And all of a sudden you see that the word of God is constantly, instead of contradicting itself, it's actually confirming itself over and over and over again. All right. So the idea that, that Jesus was now here to take away the sin of the world would have been a radically different idea than what they were used to under the law. And that's why Jesus was saying, listen, the way that you think has to change because the kingdom of God has now come. Things are different now that I'm here. Radically, drastically different. Verse 5 says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. 
in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. God took no pleasure in them having to sacrifice constantly for their sin because in constantly having to sacrifice for their sin, there was constantly a consciousness of sin. That's what it says earlier in the word. And God never created us to live conscious of sin. In fact, he created us to not know good and evil. He told Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, don't eat from that. That's the knowledge of good and evil. He wanted us to be innocent towards what was evil. All we knew was good. Why? Because everything else besides the knowledge of good and evil, God said he saw that it was good. Meaning what? Everything that Adam saw was good. God never wanted him to actually know good and evil. He wanted to be innocent towards it and not constantly conscious of what was wrong. I promise that's in Genesis. It's there. It's, it's always going to be there. So he says, You've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure with them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So, I can see that clock back there. (laughs) Three minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, let's see. Where can we get to that's a good place to land? It says he takes away the second, I mean the first, in order to establish the second. So the first was the thing where sins were covered but not removed. So there was consciousness of sin constantly in the minds of the people, which continually kept them from coming into his presence. Only the high priest could come into the presence of God because the people were aware of their unworthiness and the fact that they weren't holy enough to stand before God. He says he takes away the first, which was what? Sinful people can't be in the presence of holy God to make way for the second, which was what? A holy God became the sin of humanity so that sinful humanity could be redeemed and stand in the presence of a holy God. Come on, this is the, the whole point of this thing. It is. That is, that, it, that is the whole point to this thing. He's saying, listen, you have to understand this stuff because if you don't understand this and you still have a mentality of the law, then you're only going to be doing as good as the last time that sacrifice was made and you're constantly conscious of sin. But he did away with that, and he came in the likeness of sinful man so that men could stand in the presence of a holy God, not by their own righteousness, but by a righteousness that was paid for by the blood of Jesus once for all. And notice that, that the, the wording of the Bible is so amazing. It says every priest stands. I'm going to get to this. I'll close with this part here. And then next week we'll talk about the whole point of why he wants us to come. Like the whole point is for us to come, but then the reason he wants us to come is what we'll cover next week. But, but look at, let me get to this part right here. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and time after time offering sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He's, the, the wording is beautiful. What he's saying is the priests are standing and they're daily ministering and offering sacrifice. He's saying they're constantly in this state of working, and it never actually takes away the sin of people. 
In other words, there's not enough work that you can do to take away the sin. The best you could do is have a covering for it that was a temporary covering until the next time you came and made sacrifice for those sins. And that's why priests are standing. It's because they're working, they're doing, they're trying, they're striving, and the best they can do is make atonement for a sin that now, but it doesn't actually take that sin away, so it doesn't change you. It doesn't leave you feeling that you're different, that you're not the person that you were. He says, but Jesus, who made a sacrifice once for all sin, for all time, sat. Why did Jesus say it's finished on the cross? Because he's going to sit at the hand of the right hand of the Father, and the penalty for sin has been paid once for all time. That's in the Bible. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, now we see that God through Christ was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their sins against him. So we beg as though God himself begs through us, be reconciled to God. What's he saying? This thing that kept you from coming to the Father, we now can see that God was taking care of that once for all with Jesus. So every single bit of sin and every bit of the penalty and every bit of the separation that it caused has been reconciled once for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. So now we beg. So are you saying everybody's saved? No, I'm saying everybody can be because everybody's sin has been dealt with once for all by the blood of Jesus. So now we beg as though God himself begs through us. Be reconciled to God. What's he saying? Come and receive what has been made available by the sacrifice of Christ. Leave the old behind. Put on the new. Put off the old, which is being corrupted because of the deceit of lust. And put on the new, which is created in the likeness and righteousness of God. And he, then he, 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 he tells us why. He says, therefore, we can come into his presence with a conscience that's been cleansed and a sincere heart in fullness and full assurance of faith. I said I was going to close with that, but man, I want to get to that part. He wants us to know we can come into his presence and stand before him with a clean conscience and full assurance of faith. Why? Because we know and understand what Jesus has done for us and what we've become in him. This is why the message of righteousness is so vital, because it's the thing that allows us to boldly come into his presence and stand before him with a full assurance of faith and a clean conscience so we can open ourselves up to him and allow him to come and commune with us and have intimacy. Like, if you, if you don't understand that, you won't feel worthy to come into his presence. And, and that worthiness to come before his presence isn't of your own. It's because you understand that he made the way by his blood. But that we've become one now. I'm in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's therefore now a new creation. I'm in him. So I come before him clothed in Christ. I stand before him holy, blameless, upright, and beyond reproach. That's what the word says. Why? Because then I have nothing to hide. And I'm not covering myself in my nakedness because I'm clothed with Christ and I can open myself up to him because I'm not afraid of what he's going to see. 
because I've had my sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I've been cleansed of all unrighteousness. And then what happens? What happens when the bride comes to the bridegroom in full intimacy and opens herself up to him? Something starts to become alive inside of us. I'm just going to finish. I got I have to. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. This is not just for Christmas. You, you got, don't just read the Christmas story on Christmas. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he, shall, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered her and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you there. For also the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. There's a word there when he comes to Mary that's used when he says, Rejoice, highly favored one. That word there for a favored one, for favored, is used one other time in the Bible. One other time. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Does that sound like Hebrews? He chose us. It was his idea that we could come before him holy and without blame in love. Wait, it gets better having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That word accepted there is the same word that is used to, when it says Mary is favored by God. Why? Because both are being told the same thing. Mary's saying, you've been chosen by God that the Spirit of God will come over you and come upon you, and you'll bring forth and reveal Jesus to the world. And then, in Ephesians, we're being told by Paul that the Spirit of God will come over us and come upon us. And what happens? Because we've been made right by Jesus, because we've been made accepted by him, because we come before him, we get alone with him in intimacy, and the Spirit of God comes inside of us, and something begins to grow. And we've been highly favored, just like Mary, to what? To bring forth and present Christ to the world. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's pretty incredible. That God would choose us to manifest his son and to show the world what Jesus is like. That's why he could say, those who claim the name of Christ must also in this world walk as 
he walked. Why? Because the same spirit of God that was upon Christ, he'll be on you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, that's inside of you. So for us to live the way that Christ lived is not possible on our own, but we're never alone because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, and he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He never leaves. He never forsakes. So you're not alone anyways, ever. But if you don't believe that, and you don't believe that you really have become righteous, if you really don't believe what it says in Ephesians, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. That word holy means pure that we should be holy and without blame before him. If you don't believe that you've been made holy and without blame, you'll never come before him and open yourself up to him, and he can't come and do what he wants to do in you and transform you to be able to bring forth Jesus and present Jesus to the world. Because you'll always be guarded, you'll always be closed, and you won't feel that you can come before him and open yourself up to him and allow him to come and do what he wants to do in your life. That's why we have to understand this message of righteousness because it's the thing that gives us the confidence to come before him and be intimate with him. And intimacy with him is the only thing that actually changes us and puts him inside of us so that we can actually live the life we're called to live. Every priest stands daily working and it doesn't do what the one who did it once for all time and now sits at the hand of the Father does. Father, I'm so thankful for that. God, I'm so thankful for the, the, that you chose us to stand before you holy. You chose us to stand before you holy and without blame, in love. Father, I pray that, that if there's anything in us that would say that we're not worthy, God, that you would come and remind us that our righteousness was as filthy rags, but we were told to put that off so that we could put on Christ, who is able to present us before you holy, blameless, upright, and beyond reproach. Father, that we would have full assurance of faith, that we would actually believe this thing. You know, understanding your righteousness gives you a faith to come before him. So faith makes you righteous, and then righteousness gives you faith. Paul says that, it, that, that it's faith by grace, by, by grace, that you actually become this thing, but believing that you've become this thing actually gives you a full assurance of faith so you actually have faith that you can come before him accepted and blameless and upright. So it's this revolving thing. It's, it's the faith that actually in, in what Jesus did that makes me understand I'm righteous and it's the understanding of my righteousness in him that gives me the faith to come before the Father and know that I'm accepted, desired, and loved. Oh God, thank you for that. I pray if there's anything that would keep us, God, from believing this gospel of truth, if there's anything that would keep us from coming before you open, vulnerable, and unashamed, God, that you would deal with it and speak to us the truth that would replace the lie. Father, I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.